Our scripture reading today comes from John 14, 1 through 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are starting a new sermon series on heaven today that's going to take us all the way to Christmas. We thought, hey, you know, we just did Revelation, one of the most confusing and difficult books of the Bible. Let's keep that theme going. Let's do heaven, one of the most misunderstood and difficult concepts in the whole Bible. And if you don't believe me, just take a minute and think about how our popular culture portrays heaven and how confused we all tend to be about it. You know, is heaven just a place where we're bored in the clouds forever and ever and ever? Is it a place where we meet St. Peter and he makes fun of us and won't let us into heaven? <laughs> is it a place with angels that look like toddlers who play harps all day long? Or maybe it's just a place where our pets go and they're waiting for us there. And our heaven misconceptions, uh, they aren't just the stuff of cartoons. Uh, in fact, here was Ernest Hemingway's best guess about heaven in a 1925 letter to uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. He said, to me, heaven would be a big bull ring and a trout stream outside that no one else was allowed to fish in, and two lovely houses in the town, one where I would have my wife and children and be monogamous and love them truly and well, and the other where I would have my nine beautiful mistresses on nine different floors. Then there would be a fine church where I could go and be confessed on the way from one house to the other. And I would get on my horse and I would ride out with my son to my bull ranch and toss coins to all my illegitimate children that lived along the road. Is that heaven? My hunch is even if we just surveyed the viewership right now and we asked, what do you think heaven will be like? We would get answers all over the map. Hopefully answers better than Hemingway's, but still. And even if, unlike Hemingway, we just started with the Bible, okay? If we could somehow throw out all of the movies and the cartoons and the books and the images and the blogs and the flannel graphs that have shaped our imaginations, about heaven and go right back to the source material itself, I think there's a more important question than what is heaven like? It's the question especially Christians rarely ask out loud. It's the question we spend as much time ignoring as we can with the busyness and the planning and the running around. And it's the question felt at almost every funeral, which is why we don't like going to funerals. And it creeps up in our minds and our hearts whenever we consider our own mortality, our own inevitable passing from this world into the next. Even the most faithful among us, I would wager, have asked or will ask this question somewhere deep in your soul. Is heaven real? Is it real? 
For some of you right now, I think that may be a genuine question. You're, you're unfamiliar with the biblical concept of heaven and uh, you truly doubt its existence, among, among other things kind of inherent to Christian teaching. For others, though, I wonder if even if you don't have a mind problem with heaven, you have a heart problem with it. I wonder if perhaps we're half-hearted in our belief about heaven. We don't think about it very much. It has very little impact on our daily lives. We aren't excited about it. We don't anticipate it. And we don't want to put the question, and we want to put the question off as long as possible, at least from our conscious minds. We have a heart problem with it, and I get it. But I want to force the issue here for our first sermon on this topic. Ask yourself, like it's the very first time you've ever thought about it. What if everything Jesus said about heaven was real? What if it was real? What if, just like at the end of Revelation, when Jesus shows us that all of human history points to a moment where the place God is and the place we are becomes one place, where Jesus' resurrected body truly is the picture of our future resurrection body, where everything we know in our present age about biology and physics and psychology are fundamentally different from what we can even imagine right now. What if that place was real? How would that knowledge, how would that certainty change how we live now? This is precisely the question Jesus is forcing on his disciples in our passage today, John 14. So I want us to take a look. If you have a Bible near you, turn to the book of John. It's the fourth book in your New Testament, chapter 14. Jesus in this passage is comforting his disciples as he prepares to go to the cross. That's the context here. Listen to what Jesus says. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus here is reminding his disciples, hey, believe me, believe what I say, because where I'm going to bring the new heavens and the new earth together, you will go also. In other words, he's reminding them, hey team, big picture here, heaven is real. So believe what I say, believe in God, believe also in me. And this is our first point about heaven. If heaven is real, then we can believe what God says. As I said before, Jesus says these words uh, to his disciples in what is often called the upper room discourse. This is just a fancy name for this long extended speech that Jesus gives here in the book of John as he prepares his disciples for the worst night of their lives. He knows that he is minutes away, hours away from his betrayal, arrest, and execution. Those are imminent. And his disciples try as he might throughout his ministry. They just don't get it. They don't follow what he's saying. Jesus, in this moment, is concerned that his disciples are on the brink of discipleship failure. In fact, just before this passage we read, in chapter 13, Jesus tells Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So he knows discipleship failure is right there. And Jesus' response to his disciples' complete misunderstanding about what is about to happen is to remind them of heaven. Where I'm going, you are going. Believe in me. Jesus knows, and he's reminding us too, 
that doubting heaven, doubting that God will make things right, even in the midst of really, really dark moments, is one of the most dangerous moments for a disciple. Doubting heaven. This is why Jesus, if you can, uh, if you can hold on to the truth that where I'm going, you are also going, um, that heaven is in fact real and waiting for you, then you can believe everything else I say. That's why Jesus points this out. Nothing tempts us, you guys, to disobey God more than doubting heaven is real. But if we do believe, we find that we can believe everything else God says. So just think about this. Think about all the things Jesus asks of his followers. Think, (laughs) I know this is going to sound blasphemous, but think how illogical and worthless they truly are from a worldly perspective. Just read through the Sermon on the Mount as a cynic of heaven, and you'll see what I mean. I mean, uh, for what earthly reason should we believe Jesus when he says it's better to give than to receive? What earthly reason, especially during a, a pandemic, should we not be anxious for tomorrow? Who in their right mind isn't anxious about tomorrow? Why should we love our enemy? Why should we bless those who curse us? Why should we return good for evil? I mean, none of this stuff makes any sense at all unless, unless you believe through and through that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us and that that place does not play by the rules of our present age. That that place, that that reality is more real, more important, more permanent even than this place. If heaven is real and Jesus is adamant with his disciples here, then we can and should believe every word God says. And with his help, we can actually begin to love and obey what God says. A strong, vibrant faith in and imagination for heaven is actually a key to Christian discipleship. Don't miss that. That's why we want to spend more time on this in this Advent series. But not only that, it's also critical to Christian endurance. Because if heaven is real, then we can endure any trouble. Okay, this is where Jesus goes next. Trouble, you'll notice, is the first thing Jesus acknowledges with his followers here. He says, let your hearts not be troubled. He knows trouble is coming. Trouble that will frankly rock the disciples' faith to its very core. Trouble that will lead them to abandon Jesus in his hour of need, to deny him, and to fear that he is lost to the grave forever. So, I mean, we're talking real trouble here. And that's not all. Later in this same upper room discourse, this is chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, even after my death, when you go out into the world and build my church, you're going to suffer more than trouble. You're going to have tribulation. That's the word Jesus uses. This is the same word we talked about in Revelation around the intense persecution that the church has experienced for 2,000 years. Jesus is saying, man, if, if you think tonight is bad, wait until Rome decides you need to be eradicated for sedition against the state. Trouble and tribulation. And yet Jesus has the audacity to say to his disciples in light of all of that, but let not your heart be troubled. Well, how? How can he possibly say that? What does Jesus know that we don't? Here's what he says. He says, where I'm going, you also will come with me. Don't worry. I'm preparing a place for you, a place, a new creation, that when it gets here, none of this other stuff, this trouble and tribulation, will matter anymore. Now, this isn't to say that Jesus minimizes trouble and suffering. He doesn't. But he is hinting here 
that the joy to come, if heaven is real, will ultimately defeat and undo the suffering. Only the reality of heaven gives Jesus permission to say both suffering and joy are true in the Christian life. This point, by the way, is the logical foundation for all of the Bible's teaching about suffering from start to finish. Paul, the apostle, puts this point even stronger than Jesus does here in John. In Romans 8, verse 18, Paul says this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, in my opinion, this is one of the most audacious claims in all of Scripture, if not the most. I mean, think about the sufferings of this present age. Think about what Paul is saying. Think about the war and the death and the hatred, the injustice, the genocide. Think of the disease, the death, the loss of loved ones, the worst possible things life can throw at you. On and on, that list could go. And Paul is no fool. He's seen these things. He's more familiar with suffering than probably most of us are. And he can write in Romans with a straight face, right, that sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus taught Paul this perspective. That's where Paul learned this. Can we say the same thing? Can we say it and mean it? What does Jesus know that we don't? And I love how John Ortberg in his book, Faith and Doubt, he gives this amazing illustration here. He says, imagine you're a parent and you have a child. And for a minute, this child you think had a very serious medical condition. The doctors weren't sure what to do. And you were really nervous. But all of a sudden, one day they say, you know what? We figured it out. And in fact, it's not that serious at all. It's going to require a very simple procedure and that's it. Never a problem again. You'll never have to worry about it ever again. As a parent, you feel relief when you hear that from the doctor. The best news you could have hoped for, in fact. But you turn to your child who's in the surgery room and they are petrified. They're wailing. They're screaming. Don't make me do it. Take me home. You would cry because you would hate to see your sweet baby uh, so uh, afraid. But every now and then, you'd have to leave the room and laugh. Why? Because you know it's all going to be okay. They don't know it, but you know it. Jesus knows with every fiber of his being, and it pours out of every word he speaks, that everything's going to be okay, that all will be well, better than well, better than we can possibly imagine. And he is at pains with his children to convince us and prove to us and show us that where he's going, we will be there too, where every tear is wiped away and every pain is undone. Now, if that is true, if, that, if, if the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory to come, if that is true, if heaven is real, what can we not endure? What can be taken away that we don't get back 100-fold? What should we now fear? Now you're beginning right, to see this. If heaven is as good as Jesus says it is, it changes everything, doesn't it? If this is true, everything in my life would change, even the worst and hardest things about it. But how do we know? How do we know it's real? Maybe you're, you're like, this is all great, Andrew, but you haven't answered the question, is heaven real and how do we know? Well, Jesus actually has an answer for you. It's the same answer he gives to Thomas, his disciple. Look at verse 4. 
This is Thomas. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we can know heaven is real because we already know the way. There are no shortage of bestsellers out there of firsthand accounts. You've probably seen them of people claiming to die and go to heaven and come back and, and then they write a book about it. And I'm not trying to be like cynical here, but the reason their stories sell so well is that we are all Thomas. We are desperate. If heaven is real, can someone show me the way? Maybe this person will finally convince me and get all my doubts taken care of for the low, low price of $29.99 in hardcover. Jesus tells Thomas and us, if you want to know the way, you have to know me. I am the way. When Jesus says these words on Thursday night of Holy Week, he knows he is less than 72 hours away from rolling back the stone, leaving the empty tomb on Sunday morning. And he is telling his followers and anyone who's willing to listen, heaven is real and you can know it it's real, not just, by, um, not just because I say so. Okay? Every religious teacher, when they talk about the world to come, okay, however they conceptualize heaven or the next life, whatever it is, they basically say, trust me. Here's what it's like, and you just have to believe me. Trust me, I know. Jesus and Jesus alone says, don't just trust me, watch me. I'll show you. Christians will debate and ponder what heaven is like, as they have for centuries until Jesus returns. And the Bible will give us some answers here, and we're going to cover those in the weeks to come. But it doesn't give us all the answers. And it's okay to have lots of questions about this, about what heaven is like. That's okay. It's natural. But if you want to know if heaven is real, look no further than the empty tomb. Easter morning is Jesus' exclamation point on his promise for heaven. Not just that heaven is real, but that heaven is invading earth. Indeed, it's coming for you. It's chasing you, whether you want it or not. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, which I highly recommend for you in your Advent reading list, he puts it even stronger. He says, the message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are now invited to belong to it. So for the skeptics out there, or the skeptical at heart, listen, the empty tomb is one of the most irrefutable facts of history that there is. Every manuscript that we have, every gospel written, affirms this basic truth. Every disciple and church father was willing to die for that fact. Even the first anti-Christian argument that ever existed, and we know this from Matthew's gospel, was not that Jesus was still in the tomb. That would have been really easy to point out if the resurrection weren't real. But the first story was the disciples must have stolen the body and then, you know, contrived mass hallucinations of hundreds of other people who claimed to have seen the risen Lord, which Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. Everybody knows that tomb was empty and that people saw Jesus. So if Jesus was born in a Bethlehem manger 2,000 years ago, if he has, as those closest to him, died proclaiming risen and risen indeed, if that tomb is empty, then all bets are off. The verdict is in, and you can and should believe every word Jesus says about the world to come. It means Jesus' resurrection is yours. His new resurrection body is yours. And heaven itself is coming for you. And that changes everything. Heaven is real. Jesus proved it. And he looks at you and me and he says, Where I am going, if you put your faith in me, you are going to.